All right. Uh, and uh, so we looked at Romans uh, eight sixteen through 18 last week, and we're picking it up with uh, verse 19 today. And I'd like to get the next uh, uh, four or five verses or so done. Um, try to get down through about verse... 23 or so today uh, and uh, and then pick it up with 24 next week. And you can pray for me because I'm going to be traveling from Wednesday through late Saturday evening and driving all day Saturday. So somewhere in there I've got to finish. I've actually done quite a bit of work on next week's lesson already, but, but uh, you might pray I managed to finish <laughs> preparation for next week's uh, lesson. Uh, but let's read, beginning in chapter 8, let's begin reading in verse, um, let's begin reading in verse 18 and read down through verse 27 just to kind of give ourselves the context of what we're talking about. Um, just a second here. Now, let's back up to verse 12 just to kind of get the whole context, okay? So, let's read from 12 down through uh, verse 27, and, uh, and then we'll do some review. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby adoption is sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us or in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Okay. All right. So last week we were looking at 16 through 18 pretty much is what we covered. What do you remember we talked about last week? Okay. Okay. So we talked about suffering with Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean for a believer to suffer with Christ? What are some of the things we talked about? Okay. 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 Uh, exactly. I, I suggested that I, that uh, that it really seems in the passage here, and we'll see more of this today. That he's not simply talking here about the suffering that we experience uh, because of our testimony or because of our witness. It's not just persecution. It certainly would include that. It's not just persecution, but it's all suffering. That everything that we suffer as believers, we suffer in a context as uh, uh, as fellow heirs with Christ, we, we in one sense enter into His suffering. So, uh, I didn't mention this last week, but maybe one way we could think about this is, is as Christ was on earth, He suffered many things. He, he, suffered, many, he suffered many things because of, uh, because of His ministry, because of His testimony, because of His confrontation with the religious authorities and and uh, and because he was the son of God, he suffered all those things. But he also suffered as he watched others suffer and suffered. An example of that would be uh, uh, in the story of, uh, of the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus goes to Bethany and and Lazarus has died and everybody is weeping there. And we have that shortest verse in the Bible. Everybody knows the verse that says Jesus wept. And so we see. There, Christ entering into the suffering of others. And He suffers as He sees others suffering. He mourns as He sees others mourning. Uh, of course, He didn't mourn without hope. He knew what He was going to do. But just the anguish and the suffering that they experienced, He took upon Himself. So there's a sense when we suffer with Christ that we, like Christ, we enter into, we have a perspective on suffering, uh, both our own suffering and the suffering of others, that the world doesn't have, okay? And so I think those are some of the things that Paul is talking about here. And we'll explore this some more this week as we go on. But what else did we talk about last week? You all are a quiet bunch today. I'm going to have to work to get you guys pumped up here. Did, did you all talk about a few subjects, the world, the suffering, the authorship of that? Uh, no. In the garden, when we, I'm speaking, I shouldn't say royally, but we as humankind mm-hmm. took the fruit, ingested it, became corrupt. That was 
because we became subject to something else. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So is that is that the fleshly man? Is that I'm I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can you articulate your question more precisely? Yes. Um, we're talking about suffering of the world. Yes. And it started in the, in the garden. Yes. Of yes. Uh, the whole world suffered it because our, in the first chapter in Genesis, we were supposed to be rulers of the living. Yes. We're actually going to talk about that today. Yeah. Yeah. And the, because we, we were supposed to be rulers of the living, we became, we wanted the knowledge of life and death, and therefore to know it, we experienced it. Right. And so the whole world also experienced it. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Is that where this is going to Uh that's included in some of the things he's talking about. Yes, yeah. Because we sinned, and and the uh, and he, and he'll elaborate on that today, or we'll elaborate on that today. Because we sinned, and we came under the curse of sin. All of creation also comes under the curse of sin. So all of creation is suffering because of our sin. Is that your? Is that the answer to your question? Okay. Okay. Great. Good. Yeah. And we'll explore that some more today as we as we go on. Uh, we talked last week, I'll try to prime the pump here a little bit. We talked last week about being heirs of God. Remember what we said about that? Okay. Okay. <laughs> An inheritance, okay, yeah. Okay. We talked about. Yes, we talk about the fact that we are fellow heirs with Christ. He talks about it in those verses. We're fellow heirs with Christ. And what that means is that one of the things that, that, that Christ endured when He was on earth or experienced on earth was suffering. And because we are fellow heirs with Christ, we are going to suffer with Christ. That's just given. That's part of the territory of being a child of God and being a fellow heir with Christ. So, so there is that aspect of suffering, but he says if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. So, so one of the things that we get because we are the children of God, one of the, one of the things we inherit, part of our inheritance is, is a share in the glory that Christ receives and a share in the suffering of Christ. Okay, But, but we talked about some other ways that this idea... That are some other things that this idea of being heirs of God includes. What else does it include? Yeah. Made a point that I hadn't considered before in this, in this particular verse. And if children, and if children are heirs of God, and in the past I read that as um, inheriting the things He has, mm-hmm. as opposed to Him actually being the inheritance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one of the things that Scripture talks about for the believer, for the child of God. God Himself is our inheritance. And the psalmist talks about that. And I love those psalms when, God, when, when the psalmist talks about how God is his, is his uh, uh, portion and God is his, is his inheritance. And, and that's just so special to me to think about, you know, as part of my inheritance, of course, God's going to give me things. I'm, you know, I'm going to be uh, the other part of the inheritance is and we're going to inherit the world, he says. He talks about in Romans chapter 4 about Abraham and his descendants being heirs of the world. And so there's all these 
things that we're going to get because we are the children of God. But one of the really special things we get is we get God Himself. He Himself is our inheritance. And that's pretty spectacular. Okay, So really there are, when he talks about us being heirs of God, there are the three things that I mentioned last week that, that are le- three things at least that are included in us being heirs of God. One is we get to inherit the world, so to speak. You know, it's all the, all the bennies that we typically think about that God gives to his children when finally everything, all the dust is settled. And then there is the fact that we receive God himself as our inheritance. And then the third thing is the glory of Christ that we share because we are fellow heirs with Christ. Those are all things that are included in this idea of being children of God and being heirs of God. Okay? What else? Anything else we talked about last week that sticks out to you? Well, I wasn't here with this idea you were just talking about there in, in verse 17. He puts a condition on it. You talked about that. If indeed we suffer with him. Yeah. Uh, my understanding of the passage is that it's not conditional in the sense that uh, it's some choice that we make if I decide to suffer or if I suffer, but rather it's more of a kind of a statement of fact. Since we suffer, since we're going to suffer because we are fellow heirs with Christ, it comes with the territory. We can expect that if we suffer, we will also be glorified with him, which is the point that then he develops in the next verse when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So so what he's doing is he's talking about the fact that since we're suffering or if, if, if we are, in fact, suffering, we know, in fact, that we are also going to share in his glory. So it's it's a package deal. So as we suffer, one of the things we are assured of as we suffer is that we're also going to be glorified with him. At least that's how I understand it. Now, so we talked about this idea of suffering some at the end of our lesson. You, any of you remember some of the things we talked about on that? Yeah. What Paul is trying to help us understand is how great this glory is that's going to be revealed in us. And one of the ways for you to get some sense of how great the glory is that God is going to reveal in you eventually is to look at how much you suffer now. Look at your suffering now and contemplate your suffering now. We talked about the fact sometimes... You know, some people try to be real super spiritual and act like, you know, when they're going through really difficult things that, you know, it's no big, it's no big deal because, you know, uh, God loves me. And so even though my, you know, my spouse has died or my child has died or I'm suffering from this, this terrible uh, relationship struggle that I'm going through or whatever it is, the, the thing that I'm suffering through, sometimes the kind of hyper spiritual thing is just kind of pretend like it's not really a big deal. Well, it is a big deal. And, and for the believer, for the Christian, there's nothing wrong with recognizing how painful the suffering is that we're enduring. And in fact, as we contemplate how great the suffering is, it becomes a clue to us of how great the glory is going to be that's going to replace the suffering. 
because, uh, as Anne was pointing out, he says in this verse that the suffering cannot compare to the glory. So, so there are times in our lives when we go through suffering and it just seems so overwhelming. It seems so, it seems so great and it seems so... It seems like you can't even get your arms around it. You can't, you, you can't comprehend the greatness of the suffering that you experience. And if that's true about our suffering, what does that tell us about what the glory is going to be like that replaces that suffering? Because Paul says they can't even compare. The glory is going to be so great. So that as I, we mentioned in Corinthians, he says... He says that the suffering, he says, is uh, uh, he says it, it's it is just a momentary light affliction in comparison to the glory that we're going to experience. Uh, and then one other thing before we go on. So we're talking a lot about glory. What is glory? We we talked about last week. What is glory? What is what does the word connote? What does it imply? Pardon? Perfection. Okay. Perfection. There are a couple there are a couple themes that kind of are attached to the word, particularly in the Old Testament, and then the New Testament uh, picks up those same ideas. Remember, there's two things in particular. When you think of something as glorious, what do you think of? This is a this gesture is a hint. I can advertise, but that must be in marketing or something over here. <laughs> Brilliance. Okay, brilliance. The idea of shining. We talk about the glory of God. You just think about His shining. He talks about how He's, he's so brilliant that, that even the angels cannot look at Him. They have to hide their eyes because of His brilliance. And, and we talk about how we use that term today. Uh, we, we talk, uh, we use that idea of brilliance today when we talk about people who are stars. And of course, we're usually talking about movie stars. But we, but what we're thinking about is we're thinking about the brilliance with which they uh, practice their art of, of acting and and how good they are. So, so this person is really a star. It's the it's the brilliance, it's the radiance of their expertise and their ability to do their job. And so. Uh, so we we think in those terms a little bit today. We don't use the word glory, and of course Hollywood, as I said last week, is a pretty tawdry example of really what the word glory means. But it's that idea of brilliance. But there's the sense of brilliance, and then there's another sense to it. Remember what that was? I would power and prestige. Okay, okay, and the and the idea there that comes out, and in, in particularly I'd say in the Old Testament, is the idea of weight. Just you know, when it's just heavy, you know, when we say that God is glorious, one of the things we're saying is God is heavy, you know, heavy in the sense of power and heavy in the sense of importance. OK, and 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 we use that idea today, don't we? When we talk about people, we say, well, that that person, you know, that, that guy's he's, he's a pretty heavy person. You know, when we say, we you know, sometimes we use that, you know, in reference to their actual physical weight. But sometimes we're just talking about this person carries a lot of weight. They carry a lot of influence. Okay, they're a very important person. 
These are some of the ideas that are inherent in this idea of glory. And so when, when the Scripture says that we are going to be fellow heirs with Christ and we are going to be sharers in His glory, there is some sense in which the day is going to come when you as a child of God, it's going to be revealed that you are weighty and you are brilliant. Okay? That, those are some of the things that lie ahead in the revealing of the Son of God. Now, in verse uh, 18, there at the end of verse 18, he said, uh, to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, and I suggested to you, and some translations translate that in us, and I would suggest to you that that's the better translation, because really the idea that Paul is conveying here in this passage is the idea of the glory that we share. The glory that Christ gives to us that, that in the revelation of the sons of God, this glory is going to be manifested. So it's not so much a glory that's going to be shown to us, but a glory that's going to be demonstrated that we possess is going to be demonstrated to others and as we'll see, to all of creation. So those are some of the things we talked about last week. So the problem is, he's asking us here to compare the suffering which we know and understand with something that we don't really yes. have any capacity for. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and so so in one sense what he's saying is the degree to which suffering is so intense to us in a negative way glory our glory that we will experience is going to be intense only so infinitely more that the suffering is just going to fade away and become, like Paul says, momentary light affliction. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yes? One more input to that. It will be undeniable. Okay, good. It's in Isaiah 52, the end of it. I was okay. reading that this week. Great. I was reading this. Good. And it says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, of so disfigured beyond that of any man in his form marred beyond human life so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of them for what they were not told they will see for what they have not heard they will understand oh that's good it will be undeniable yeah that's great that's good okay well so one of the ways he's, one of the things Paul's been trying to tell us is how great the glory is going to be in comparison to the suffering but now he's going to he's going to change his uh change his tack a little bit here and and he's going to talk about this great coming glory that's going to happen to the children of God and and he talks about it in reference to creation so he says in verse 19 for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So, so what he wants us to, what he wanted us to understand before is how, how, our, our glory relates to our suffering. And this glory that's coming, because we are the children of God, is this sure thing that's going to be so much greater than our suffering. 
But then he says, about this glory, he says, actually, he says, all of creation is waiting for your revelation. Now, remember, when he's talking about our revealing, the revealing of us in verse 18, he's talking about that revelation that's going to happen, that point in time when it's really going to become obvious that you're a child of God. We talked about this last week, remember? I I look at you people and, uh, you know, you don't look all that different than everybody else, you know? Some of you look better than others and some of you look... Well, we won't say that. But anyway, some of you look better than others, okay? And, uh, and, but when I look at you, if you are in fact saved, if you in fact have the Holy Spirit, I can't tell by looking at you. I can't tell by looking at you that you're a child of God. Well, maybe I can a little bit if I see the way you act, if I see the way you behave, and I see you reflect some of the character. But just by looking at you, I can't tell. But there is a point in time coming when you will be revealed to be what you are, the children of God. Okay. And when that happens, or the happening of that, that point in time when that happens, when you're going to be revealed, Paul tells us all of creation is eagerly waiting for that. One of the commentators points out that that word eagerness there has the idea of straining the neck, craning the neck. You know, when you're really, when you're really eagerly looking for something, you know, like when you were a kid and your parents took you out, you know, to the to the Fourth of July parade or whatever, you know, and you're standing there and you're waiting for the parade to come down the street, and you know, and you're around all these adults, so you're about you know half their size, and so you're you know craning your neck. That's the idea that Paul is using here when he says that all of creation is craning its neck. It's eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. Now, we have to be really careful about what Paul is saying here because it's very easy to read animistic or pantheistic ideas into here, okay? He's not telling us that creation actually is this kind of... Well, well, let me back up. What does he mean by creation in the first place? We need to understand that. When he's talking about creation here, he's not talking about the act of creation, but he's talking about the created object. So he's not talking about the act of God creating in Genesis 3, but he's talking about what God created. Okay? So he's talking about the whole natural order of things, the whole cosmos, the whole earth. Okay? That's what he's talking about. With to the exclusion of mankind. Okay? We know uh, because he sets it in opposition to mankind uh, later here in the verses. So, so, so the creation he's referring to is all of nature, if you will. All of nature excluding us. Okay? That's what he's talking about. And he's telling us that all of nature is craning its neck, is eagerly awaiting your revelation as a son of God, as a child of God. Okay? Now, now as I began to point out, I got off track. Uh, he's, not, he's not telling us here that creation, that nature has some kind of spirit inside of us. Okay? So, this is more of a, this is more of a metaphor than a literal thing. It's not that, 
It's not that the trees out here are thinking in their heads, thinking, you know, boy, I can't wait for so-and-so to be revealed as the Son of God. Okay, It's, it's not that the trees and the rocks and the, and the dogs are all thinking, you know, that they're waiting for this. But rather, because, because that's, that's really animism. That's the idea that, there's, that there is some kind of divine spirit or some kind of special spirit in, in, in creation. So you get into that when you get into animism, pantheism, particularly animism, where, where there's the worship of the rocks and the trees. And, that, and Scripture is very clear about that. That's idolatry. Okay? And Scripture prohibits, prohibits us from looking at creation that way. So, so that's not the idea that Paul is talking about. But what he's, what he's talking about is that, is that there is something within the creation. There is something within nature that, that just inherently, instinctively, if you will, yearns for that time when your glory is revealed. So, I want you to remember that when you're out there in June and July and August and you're trying your best to keep those bushes out there in your yard growing and you're out there trying to water them and keep them going, I just want you to remember that they're out there and they're going, man, I sure wish you'd get revealed because, because then I wouldn't have to work so hard to stay alive. Okay? But I was thinking, you see, you see, nature knows that it's not destined to be futile. You notice he talks about futility there. He says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revision of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery. To corruption. So, so he says creation is subjected to futility. What does he mean by that? Now, the idea there, the idea is the idea of meaninglessness or frustration. Have you ever been frustrated? You ever been frustrated? Yeah. Ron's been frustrated. He knows what it's like. When do you get frustrated? What causes you to get frustrated? Okay, when you lose control of what? Think about the last time you were frustrated. It may have been this morning when you were trying to get your family to church on time. Yeah. You try to accomplish something and you can't accomplish Exactly. Exactly. Pardon? Block goals. Block goals, yes, exactly. We get frustrated when we're trying to accomplish something, when we're trying to achieve something, and something keeps... Us from realizing that, okay? That's the idea of futility here, okay? And he says the whole creation is subjected to futility. And the futility particularly he has in mind, he makes clear what he means by that in the next verse. Because in the next verse he says it is subjected to what? Slavery to corruption. Okay? So the futility that the creation senses, if you will, 
feels is its slavery to corruption. Creation's frustration is that it wasn't designed to corrupt. It was designed to endure. And it yearns to endure. Now, I'm like you. I like nature. Uh, and I'm sure you do too. I like being out in nature. Uh, you know, I uh, don't get to do as much of it as I used to when I was younger and a, a little stronger. But, but still, I try to get out in nature as much as I can. And many of you know, on, on uh, Saturdays, uh, when I'm preparing for my lesson, I try to typically go out to the lake and spend several hours out there walking you know, through the woods out there and praying and meditating, thinking about the lesson and thinking about the passage and that sort of thing. And I enjoy doing that. And I was, of course, doing that yesterday, uh, walking along this trail through the woods and stuff. And I always enjoy that because I love being out in nature. And nature, even in its fallen state or in its cursed state, is still just remarkably beautiful. But as I was walking through the woods yesterday and I was thinking about this passage, I was looking around me and I was thinking how much death there was. I was looking at all the dead trees. You know, instead of the live trees, I was looking at the dead trees. The ones that are just lying there on the floor of the woods, just rotting. The trees weren't created to do that. Trees were created to grow, to stand up. To put out leaves to be green or whatever color they they uh, they're destined to be. That's and that and they were in, created to endure that way. Or I think about the, uh, you know, you all watch these nature shows. On, I don't know if we all do, but some of us watch. I don't much anymore since my kids are grown. We watch nature shows on television, right? And the the ones they really like to show, you know, are the ones where the gazelle or the whatever is splitting across the African uh, tundra or whatever, you know, with a lion in hot pursuit, you know, coming after it. Yeah. Did you ever ask yourself, why doesn't that gazelle just go, well, it's my destiny to be dinner for the lion. So I will just lay down here and provide dinner for the lion. Why doesn't he do that? He has a built-in instinct to endure, to live. And he will do whatever he can to stay alive. And yet, for all of creation, and it doesn't matter where you are, for all of creation, whether, whether we're talking about, you know, the, the top of Mount Everest, to the bottom of the Mariana Trench off the Philippines, whether we're, whether we're talking about the, 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 the frigid, icy uh, wasteland of Antarctica to the hot sands of the Sahara Desert to the, to the lush uh, green uh, uh, fields of, the, of middle America. Uh, it doesn't matter where you talk. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about the great, you know, giant beasts, the elephants and that sort of thing of, of India and Africa, or whether you're talking about those little marmot things they have out in the Colorado Rockies. If you ever climb up above Timberline, there are these little kind of mousy, squirrely little things and you can't ever see them because they, they just stick their head up and as soon as they see you, they dart, dart underneath the rocks and they hide and that sort of thing. Whatever. 
All of that. The entire creation, he says, is frustrated. Because it cannot be what God created it to be. It is subjected to futility. It is a slave of corruption. Now he says, it's not, it didn't do this willingly. Creation didn't just say, well, you know, I just assumed, you know, I know I was created to endure and last, but I just assumed, uh, you know, I just assumed fade away, die off. He didn't choose that willingly. But it was subjected by God. Now, why was creation subjected by God to futility? To corruption? Because of sin. Because of the sin of Adam. Now, there's a lot of, there's a lot of lessons in here for us. But one of the things I want to point out is uh, some people get particularly in our day and age where we have this kind of exaltation of nature where we kind of deify it. Uh, some people really kind of take offense at the, at the biblical concept of man's dominion over nature. Okay? And one of the reasons for that, incidentally, is, uh, is a guy, an uh, unbeliever guy back a number of years ago by the name of Lynn White, wrote an essay in which he blamed the the terrible condition of the environment on Christians. He said it's really it's really Christianity's fault. He wrote this and he and he explained that it's because Christians have this idea of the dominion of nature that they can just exploit nature and destroy nature, which of course is completely foreign to what the scriptures teach. The guy had no clue what Christianity really teaches about nature. Okay, But he wrote this essay and it became very popular and a bunch of people started quoting it and all kinds of things. So now kind of the prevalent idea that, that we have in our culture today really is a spinoff from Lynn White's essay that he wrote and uh, published, I forget, it was published in a magazine, I forget the name of the magazine. But he published, this, uh, he published this essay and everybody kind of picked up on it. And so now we know. This whole idea of mankind's dominion over nature is the reason why we have all this pollution and all this sort of stuff. Okay. And it's Christianity's fault. Okay. Well, of course, if we read the Bible, we understand that the Scripture has no such view of man's dominion over nature. And, and, uh, and we understand that man is given a stewardship over nature to care for it and to nurture it and certainly to use it uh, to enhance his uh, his his uh, living conditions and his health and his well-being and that sort of thing, certainly that is there. But but it's none of this idea of exploitation and destruction of nature that we sometimes get credited for. Okay. That being said, though, what is true is that our sin is the reason. That all of creation is subjected to futility. That all of creation is brought under this corrupting influence. Okay? Now, one of the things that tells me is one of the things that tells me is it illustrates to us 
the fact that man has dominion over nature. It's evidence of our dominion over nature. Right? There's a verse in Proverbs where uh, Proverbs says, and he's, he's talking about people in this case, but he says, when a wicked man rules, he says, the people groan. Remember that verse? Uh, Proverbs 29, I think somewhere in there. When a wicked man rules, the people groan. In other words, when you have a ruler who is evil, all of those who are subject to him groan under the influence of that evil. Well, that's what we have going on with creation. Because mankind has dominion over creation. When we sinned and we brought down the curse upon ourselves, we brought down suffering and corruption on everything that was under our dominion. So all of creation, Paul says here, groans and suffers the pains of childbirth even until now. Because of our sin. So, creation is not subjected to futility willingly, he says, but because of Him who subjected it. And what he's talking about there, he's talking about God. He's talking about how God, in fact, when Adam and Eve sinned, it says in Genesis 3, that God cursed the ground. God brought the whole of nature into this futility, into this corruption. So all of nature now is yearning, craning its neck, waiting for that day when he says it can be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God or the sons of God. So all of creation, he says, is waiting for this day, this day that's coming, when you, if you are a child of God, are going to be revealed to be who you really are, a child of God. See, we can't see it now. We can't tell it now. Now you have, he says, this inner witness in you, the Holy Spirit, who's telling you, who cries out in you, Abba, Father, and causes you in prayer to cry out, Abba, Father. So you have this inner witness within you of the Spirit telling you you are a child of God. But it's not really obvious. You can go out and you can walk down the streets of Norman, Oklahoma, and nobody's going to walk down the other side of the street and go, hey, look at that person. That's <laughs> a child of God. They're not going to say that. Because it's not going to be obvious. They're going to think you're just like them. But there is going to be a revealing. And when that, is revealed, when that revealing happens, it's going to be obvious how weighty and how brilliant you are. That you are a child of God. And all of creation at this point is waiting for that to happen. Because it's only when that happens that it can then realize what it was really created to be. So it's waiting for you to be revealed. Now, so he says then, he says the creation is... Uh, 
uh, excuse me, verse 22. He says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So, so, be, so we have creation is groaning, it's yearning, it's longing. It's, it has this, this inherent propensity, potentiality, if you will, to endure, but it's subjected instead to this corruption. And so it's constantly yearning to be free. It's the reason that gazelle runs from the lion. Because it yearns for that endurance. That lasting nature. And until that happens, it's a frustration in nature. And so it's groaning and it's waiting. But then he says in the next verse that nature is not the only thing groaning. What else is groaning? Verse 23. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Well, this verse is loaded. Okay, so let's see if we can unpack it a little bit. Excuse the cliche there. He says, he says, just as nature is groaning for that revelation, you're groaning for that revelation. Is that true? I don't know about you guys, but I am. And the older I get, the more I groan. Right? Okay? The, the older I get, the more I groan. Because the older I get, the more I realize that like Paul says, though my inner man is being renewed day by day, my outer man is what? Decaying. <laughs> Have you noticed that? <laughs> Have you noticed how your outer man, your body, is decaying? So even though because you are a child of God and you have the Spirit of God in you, day after day you find your inner person being renewed, even though that is true, you find that that outer man is just decaying. It keeps falling apart on you, right? And we're doing all we can, especially when we get to about the age most of us are here in this room. We get to the age where we're doing everything we can just to keep holding it together for a little longer, right? Okay. And so we find ourselves groaning, but particularly we're groaning, he says, because we have what? The first fruits of the Spirit. Because God has given to us His Holy Spirit. Now, when He says the first fruits of the Spirit, He does not mean that He's given us part of the Spirit and we're going to get the rest of the Spirit later. Jesus made it very clear in John chapter 3, He gives the Spirit without measure. So, when He says He's given us the first fruits of the Spirit, He's not saying that He's given us a little bit of the Holy Spirit and we'll get the rest of the Holy Spirit when we get to heaven. Okay. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, he's given us the Spirit as the first fruits of the entire inheritance that we're going to get. That's what he's saying. So we've got this whole package deal of this inheritance that he's promised to us. The inheritance of the world, the, the, the inheritance of Christ, and, and the inheritance of God, and all these things that he's promised to us. Okay? So, all of this is ours, and as a 
down payment. He uses that term in another place. The earnest of our salvation. He gives us the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, Luther back there, he, he deals in selling cars. I sold cars for years. And we kind of have a deal when you sell cars. If somebody comes to you and they're interested in the vehicle you want to buy, what do they do when they finally decide they want to buy that vehicle, but it's not quite ready yet, but they want to buy it, what do they do? What do you do? Sign a contract. Sign a contract, okay, which is a promise, right? And with the contract, what? Yeah. A down payment. We, in the old, term, old days, we called it earnest money. Why do we call it earnest money? Why do they call it earnest money? Show you were earnest, right? To show you were earnest, okay? And the Holy Spirit has been given to us as earnest of this inheritance, okay? Now, when I was selling cars, and I only did it for a couple of years, but when I was selling cars, people would come in, you know, like on a Saturday, and they're just kind of shy, and, and we'd put the high pressure on them, you know, and we'd try and convince them to buy. And then they go, okay, you know, I want this pickup or I want this car or whatever. And we'd say, well, okay. And so we get them signed. Okay, and then we'd say, you know, we need a down payment because we need to prep this vehicle for you so when you come back Monday, you can get it, okay? So say, uh, say in today's modern terms, it's a twenty or $30,000 vehicle. And so we say, well, give us a down payment of... Can you write us a check for $1,000 in down payment? Okay. So, uh, so you write them a check for $1,000 okay, on Saturday. And you're expecting to pick up the vehicle on Monday, right? So when that person comes, calls you up on Monday and says, uh, I found another pickup over there I want to buy. What happens to the $1,000? Pardon? Theoretically, you know, in my experience, we never did. We never, in my experience, ever keep anybody's deposit. We'd always give it back to them just because we couldn't stand the bad publicity. Right. So we'd give. But in theory, you can get that money goodbye. Right. Because it was your pledge. It was your earnest. You said, I'm going to do it. And we spent money getting this vehicle ready for you. So now that money is ours, right? Okay. Now that's the theory of it. It doesn't always work out. Now I understand in real estate it does work out that way. If you put out, you put down money on a house and then you, uh, through some fault of your own, opt not to buy the house, you lose the money, okay? It's earnest money. Are you earnest or not? The Holy Spirit was given to us as earnest. Now, you come in on Monday and you've just bought a $20,000 truck. And uh, I don't even know if you can buy a truck for $20,000 nowadays. But you come in to buy a $20,000 truck and you paid a $1,000 deposit on Saturday to get them to prep that truck for you, right? And so you come in to buy the truck on Monday and they bring the truck up and you sit down and you write out a check for how much money? Pardon? How much? 20000 You all agreed? You write a check for 20000 How many of you would write a check for 20000 Luther's shaking his head because he's on the other end of it. He knows it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I would love to be able to get somebody to write me a check for $20,000 on Monday when they gave me a $1,000 deposit on Saturday. 
You don't have a check for 20000 You're having a check for 19000 right? Because that $1,000 on Saturday is part of the purchase price, right? Isn't that the way it works? Now, you have been given the Holy Spirit as an earnest of your inheritance. That's been given to you. You actually already have part of your inheritance. Now, friends, you know, I have to deal with all the same passages in the Scripture you have to deal with. And sometimes you read them and you go, does that say I can lose my salvation? So I have to wrestle with those passages too. But I also have to deal with passages like this. And I know that today I have the Holy Spirit as a down payment on my inheritance. And God cannot lie. God cannot lie. Paul calls it an earnest. Paul says in Ephesians, it's an earnest. He has given me the earnest of the Holy Spirit. Is God earnest or not? I have received the Holy Spirit and, 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 and it's not just something God gave me just as kind of a promise. He's actually given me part of my inheritance. So that when I am revealed to be a son of God, when you're revealed to be a son of God in that day, folks, you're not going to get the Holy Spirit because you've already got it. Okay? We'll pick it up there next week and go on.